1: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Arimas.
2: And I'm April Glazer.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, March 27th. The fallout continues from Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal, wherein the profile data of 50 million Facebook users was illegitimately obtained and allegedly used by Trump's online voter targeting firm, Cambridge Analytica. On today's show, we'll go deep into some of the subplots of that scandal, what it means for Facebook, elections, and your privacy. We'll also discuss the devastating news that an Uber self-driving car killed a pedestrian in Arizona last week, and what that means for the future of autonomous vehicles. Finally, we'll touch on a tech story that has gotten less attention than it probably deserves, a change in the law that governs whether websites are liable for what their users say.
2: Later, we'll be joined by David Carroll, a professor at Parsons School of Design at the New School in New York. He focuses on political campaigns and data targeting, and he's also suing Cambridge Analytica in the UK to find out what the company did with his data and where it might have landed. We'll talk with him about the mechanics of how campaigns use voter data, taken legitimately or not, to get elected.
1: And we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, our picks for some of the most interesting stories we found on the web this week.
2: So last week was a great week for our beloved producer, Max, to take a vacation because it's not like any news broke on our beat. Um, Actually, the Cambridge Analytica story was massive, and I feel like we talked about it on just about every news network, including Slate.com, except for our own podcast. But we're going to make up for that this week and talk about it a whole lot. We have a great guest. And uh, and Will and I have both been all over this story uh, for the past, you know, seven or 10 days, right?
1: Yeah, we've been covering it nonstop in April. I feel like I can't turn on... NPR or CBS without seeing you on there or hearing you on there these days talking about the Cambridge Analytica story. Oh, I um, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the latest news this week is that Cambridge Analytica whistleblower Christopher Wiley testified before British Parliament, and it now looks likely that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg will testify to Congress in April. But Be- Before we get into all that, April, do you want to quickly bring us up to speed on just what we're talking about here for anybody, it, just in case they haven't been closely following?
2: Just a quick rundown about two Fridays ago, Facebook put out a blog post in the evening, a a really great Friday news dump uh, that said that they were suspending the accounts of Cambridge Analytica and a couple of uh, Cambridge Analytica's associates because the company uh, had obtained uh, information from Facebook users that it said it had deleted, but Facebook learned that it hadn't actually deleted.
1: Cambridge Analytica being the the political consultancy that worked on the Donald Trump campaign and the Brexit leave campaign and a number of other noteworthy campaigns around the world.
2: That's right. Yeah. And uh, and and they were kind of the group that that actually worked in the office with Trump's digital arm to uh, to target voters on Facebook and across the Internet. And then Saturday morning, we learned thanks to kind of two stunning reports, one in The Guardian and one in The New York Times, uh, about kind of more details about why Facebook suspended Cambridge Analytica. And what we learned is that the voter targeting firm that was hired by the Trump campaign had obtained the user profile data on 50 million or actually more than 50 million Facebook users. That was thanks to a whistleblower who spoke to The New York Times. The New York Times said that they had also seen that data. Now, the deal is, is that it was actually reported in The Guardian in 2015 that the Ted Cruz campaign, who was also a client of Cambridge Analytica before they went to go work for Trump, uh, had been using, uh, illegitimately harvested Facebook, you know, user profile data to target its campaign messaging. Facebook knew about this. It was reported in The Guardian and, at the time, Facebook never said anything publicly about it or alerted their users about it. And But what they did do is they asked Cambridge Analytica and uh, Cambridge Analytica's associates to delete that data. And they said that they got a uh, legal verification that it was deleted. The New York Times says that it wasn't deleted because they had actually seen portions and copies of it. And one thing that I just want to note here, the way this data was obtained – is through, was through an online Facebook quiz, right? And so these were like more popular a few years ago. Did you ever take them, Will, do you know what I'm talking about here? They were like these kinds of personality quizzes.
1: Yeah, I'm sure I did, although I, I hate to admit it.
2: <laughs> I think a lot of us did just because they were like really floating around Facebook at the time. And and so the story, uh, as it was reported in the in the Times and the Guardian, was that in 2013, a uh, a professor, at Cambridge uh, named Alexander Kogan, a uh, psychology professor, had created an online quiz uh, for Cambridge Analytica and they actually paid him about $800,000 or so to make this quiz. And that quiz uh, was called This Is Your Digital Life. And it was downloaded by about 270,000 people. And it was used to kind of harvest data from the people that downloaded it. But Facebook's policies at the time allowed for not only the data of the people who downloaded the quiz to be, to be received by the app developer, but also all of those people's friends. So that number, 270,000, inflated to like 50 million in Cambridge, Analytica. Politica got all of that data and then uh, and then you know used it. Facebook says that Alexander Kogan wasn't supposed to hand that data over to a fourth party, him being the the third party, right, because it's Facebook, the user, and then him. But the, the thing that's interesting here is that Kogan didn't actually break any rules with taking that data, right, Will?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the sort of confounding things about this scandal. I mean, obviously, it's a huge story. It's both a politics story because for some people it might help to explain how Trump's Facebook advertising campaign was so effective and how he helped sort of, um, you know, polarize voters and turn them against Hillary Clinton or su- suppress Clinton's turnout. But it's also a tech story, and, and the tech story is, is a little confusing, because as you pointed out, Facebook's policies didn't actually prevent apps from gathering all kinds of data, not only on the Facebook users who signed up for that app, but on all their friends, too, who had nothing to do with that app. In fact, Facebook's policies openly encouraged this sort of thing. And so the only part that was actually against Facebook's policies was after Dr. Kogan... And can I just take a minute to, to note that he later changed his name to Dr. Specter, which is a great Bond villain so name. So many and then,
2: subplots we're going to get into.
1: <laughs> and now back to Dr. Kogan, because I guess being a Bond villain doesn't serve his interests at the moment. Um, but the only thing that actually went wrong from Facebook's perspective is that this researcher then handed that information to Cambridge Analytica. Uh, he was supposed to just, you know, keep it and use it for his own purposes. And, and according to Facebook's policies, that would have been just fine. Now, of course, most people don't think it was just fine that Facebook allowed just any app developer to waltz in, take your data and your friend's data without anybody really knowing it.
2: Right. We're talking about like random personality quizzes that were trying to determine whether you're Princess Leia or Chewbacca, right? right. <laughs> that you might have taken for whatever like bored reason on your phone a few years ago, downloaded your data, all of your friend's data, and then that was used to target political ads at you. Uh, you know, for, for you know, who knows what? I mean, we do know that the Trump campaign and the Cruz campaign used it. But the thing about data is that you copy it by pressing a button. And so, you know, we know that Cambridge Analytica got this data. We don't know who else could have gotten it. And we don't know what other app developers could have gotten it. Facebook had a policy until 2014 that allowed app developers to just take, you know, so much data. And the, the deal with this is that, like, Facebook took a thirty percent cut of the uh, of like transactions that were done through apps. But then um, in exchange for that, the kind of trade off was that, you know, they kind of had these this super porous data sharing policy and they were just kind of letting people take all this data. And, you know, the FTC is now investigating whether that was against the law for Facebook to do that because they were supposed to, under a, an agreement with the FTC, get explicit consent from users about, um, you know, how their data is shared.
1: Right. So I think really the heart of this scandal is the really shady data privacy practices that Facebook had several years ago. I mean, it actually closed some of these worst Mm loopholes in 2014 and 2015. It stopped letting third-party app developers harvest data uh, on your friends when you you logged into the app through Facebook. And from Facebook's perspective, they're like, what's the big deal here? Like, everybody knew about these policies at the time. Everybody, all the users gave consent for their information to be harvested in this way. Um, You know, when you signed up for one of these apps, it gave you a little pop. That said, oh, are you okay sharing data on, you know, yourself, your friends, your birthday, your relationship status, whatever else. And of course, everybody pressed yes, because that's what you had to do to even get to the app. So it's really, it's really, we're sort of like relitigating what was in retrospect, an awfully permissive. Privacy policy on Facebook's part, and we're doing it because we now know that some of that data was used in a in a blatantly improper way. And also, I I think a big part of what's driving this scandal is just like we're still a lot of people are still looking for reasons why Trump won and and don't understand how Trump won and the fact that you know maybe he was doing some kind of sinister targeting on Facebook. uh, You know that that is really fueling the anger at Facebook that I don't think we would see if this were a breach. You know, with uh, some some other kind of uh, some other kind of use of that data for advertising or marketing or that sort of thing.
2: So, I mean, do you think that the scandal was is overblown? Then, I mean, obviously, people are searching for you know as as much as many reasons as they can to kind of explain Trump's rise. Um and, and it is looking more and more that his campaign was open to to breaking the rules, or at least the people that they associated with were open to breaking the rules. But is this is this overblown? Because this data was taken out of Facebook's front door. This was their policy, was to allow app developers to harvest this much data. And Facebook, you know, didn't seem to really keep track of what they did with that data after it was taken.
1: Yeah, here's how I look at it. I mean, I I think in a way it is overblown because uh, you, and we'll get into this some in our interview yeah. with with Dr. David Carroll, but you know, it's it's hard to say whether all this targeting that Cambridge Analytica did or all the data it gathered actually had any effect on the election. We we don't know.
2: Well, Trump won. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: okay. Yes, that that we can't argue about.
2: But I mean, the
1: the the thing that I think people are really upset about is just in general, like Facebook's cavalier attitude toward their information over time. And this is just like a really good excuse to get upset about that, I think. I mean, I think that's at least part of what's going on here.
2: We have to remember, it was only in November that ProPublica released a story, and then we did some additional reporting on that, uh, that Facebook was allowing advertisers through its own ad platform to target people based on, on racist slurs and anti-Semitic slurs, right? And so uh, I think, you know, things like, do Jews ruin the world, was actually something that ProPublica was allowed to sell ads via Facebook to target people who are interested in that type of, like, bigoted category of interest, um, and so <laughs> that was pretty recent. And so, I mean, we're concerned about how other people are using Facebook data. There's also uh, concerns about how Facebook uses Facebook data. Um, it's really just casting this whole conversation about digital advertising uh, really into, into focus in, in a way that hopefully or maybe might, might be palpable for congressional action.
1: Yeah, my my sort of ten thousand foot view on this is that Facebook got huge and wildly profitable by allowing people to do all kinds of things, yeah. whether that's advertisers uh, targeting you with with all kinds of ads, or whether it's app developers harvesting your data, or whether it's people saying whatever they want in a in a public or semi public forum. And then the past couple of years have been like whoops, turns out when you allow people to do all that stuff, some of them are going to use that power for, for evil, and now we got to figure out how to deal with that because Facebook didn't really build in any of the kind of safeguards that would have been necessary. So I think that's sort of like the meta story of which this is the the latest instance. But I wanted to ask you something, April. So you wrote about this this campaign, the Delete Facebook campaign that was circulating on Twitter mostly last week. I think it's died down a bit already maybe partly due to, to your story and, and and others like it. But what was, what was wrong in your view with the idea that we should all just, let's just delete Facebook. You know, if you don't like it, just leave.
2: Um, well, you know, not everybody has the privilege of leaving. I, I think that's pretty obvious. Facebook has become kind of a central communications platform for so many people's lives, uh, you know, and it's also become a place where people have formed communities and been able to organize and meet people that they have stuff in common with that they would not have been able to before. And that's one of the reasons why the Internet is this, kind of, you know, magical place and, and you know, it, it, it does allow people to to come together that, that wouldn't meet otherwise. And Facebook has provided a platform for that. Another reason why I had a problem with the delete Facebook movement is because it suggests that Facebook has failed consumers, which it has, but really Facebook has failed society. Right. What we're talking about here is, is not just a breach of my personal trust, but really uh, a business model and a, a, a monopolistic company in a, in a sense. I mean, Facebook is so big and so dominant that uh, that it really hasn't acted as responsibly as it should with the amount of power that it has. And I'll also just say with any movement of media or technology reform, you end up having to often use the very tools that you're protesting against. Right. So like uh, whether you're fighting media consolidation or, or, you know, for community access to radio or something like that, you're often going to have to try to appeal to these big media players to, to talk about your story. And people who are organizing against Facebook are going to probably have to use Facebook to organize. There's clearly an interminable amount of things that we can say about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, especially as it continues to unfold. But we want to take a moment to talk about some other things that happened last week outside of Facebook news. Well, let's talk about Uber. There was a a really devastating accident that happened in Arizona last week.
1: Right. The news is that Uber has been ordered to take its self-driving cars out of Arizona And other states are also looking into shutting down Uber's self driving car program after a March 19th accident in which one of its self driving cars in Tempe, Arizona, struck and killed a woman who was crossing the street. The pedestrian was not in a crosswalk, but a pedestrian nonetheless. The road was dimly lit, there were some poor conditions. There was video released the following week. It was really harrowing to watch, actually. You could see the driver was not paying attention to what the self-driving car was doing and looked up right at the time of the crash. Now Uber is obviously in a lot of trouble. Its program has come under intense scrutiny, and there are questions all around the country with these states that had been trying feverishly to pave the way for autonomous vehicles. They're now thinking, wait a minute, maybe it's actually not ready.
2: Right. I mean, you know, first of all, the Uber's autonomous vehicle program is completely suspended in Arizona now, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. They're they're off the streets, and in fact, the, the the latest news there is that it looks like Arizona is not going to let Uber back. And in fact, California is now saying that they may not renew Uber's uh, uh, permit to keep doing self driving testing in that state.
2: Right. This could be a real setback. But you know, one thing that that was kind of pronounced to me ab- ab- about the reporting around this was that the the woman who who was so tragically killed. Was a homeless person. And, you know, this definitely made a lot of news, the accident here, but a lot of the news very much focused on what does this mean for Uber self-driving car, you know, prospects and not really on the person who who was killed. And and I'm curious if if she wasn't homeless, if she was, say, a 17 year old, uh, you know, girl who was going to go to college next year. You know, would the reporting have been different, and, and would it have been more focused on on the life of the person who who was lost here?
1: Yeah, I think you're probably right. And even aside from whether there was any sort of bias against her on the part of the the media or commentators because she may have been homeless, uh, there's also just the fact that she doesn't. You know, there aren't the parents, the immediate family stepping forward to to give testimony to her life, and that that's sad in its own way.
2: And then, who who is at fault? here right is it is it the the machine is it the, the man behind the wheel is it is it uber
1: yeah i mean that's always that's often an interesting question when you have these kinds of accidents with self-driving cars or semi-autonomous cars i mean legally there's there's often a definition of who is at fault and it's a binary thing either you're at fault or you're not but what we're beginning to see is when there's this tricky relationship between human driver and, and machine driver, the the blame is more layered. So in this case, um, yes, the self-driving car should have stopped. There was also a human behind the wheel whose job was to watch out for any kind of emergency and to be paying attention. It doesn't seem that that person was paying attention in this case, so maybe there's some fault there. The pedestrian, the, the woman who was the victim of the crash, was not in a crosswalk crossing a dark street late at night, um, so legally you know, maybe there was fault there uh you know it's just not it's just not straightforward that you can say exactly who or what in this case was at fault
2: right um and so you know very very sad to 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 lose a life always and and de- we'll definitely be watching this case as as we continue to to see where the industry goes um I was following another piece of news this week also uh around a vote in the Senate that finalized um to kind of alter and change one of the bedrock legal protections that internet companies have really relied on, uh You know, since the 90s, a bill was passed that is designed to allow victims of sex trafficking online to sue companies that put those listings up or that host those listings. Uh, Previously, under a law called the Communications Decency Act, owners of websites had almost no liability for what happened on their platforms. Now we see that law starting to crack a little bit with the Senate and the House uh, having passed before uh, a change to the law that would allow uh, victims of sex trafficking to press charges against these websites.
1: Yeah, and and in some ways that seems uncontroversial, but it is it really goes to the heart of what the modern internet is built on, right? This is this is the famous Section two hundred and thirty of the of the Communications Decency Act that's at, that's at stake here.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so you know, the internet really wouldn't be what it is today if it wasn't for this uh, Section two hundred and thirty. Uh, law or this kind of section of the Communications Decency Act, you know, in the, in the mid-90s when it was passed, it was when a lot of these companies were just starting to form. And if they had been liable for everything that their users said or posted or emailed or, you know, wrote on a message board, uh, then they wouldn't have been able to grow. They wouldn't have been able to probably court the investment that they did because, you know, investors probably would have been like, whoa, you know, this isn't safe. We don't really know what our legal liability is here. But once, you know, investors knew That they weren't going to be legally liable, they you know put a lot of money into these companies, and they they grew astronomically. And uh, we certainly wouldn't have the platforms or the internet that we have today, or the innovation online you know that we have and rely on today, uh, if it wasn't for the the laws in place that allowed for this tremendous growth.
1: No, that's that's right. I mean, we we literally wouldn't have YouTube or Facebook or Twitter as we know it, or any of these services if they were required by law to be responsible for what was posted on their platforms. They just literally couldn't do it at this scale um, because it's an inevitability when you run a platform this large that there's going to be bad stuff that's posted. You can't, you know, get to it all in time. And we would just, the internet would just look very different today if not for this act. So it's understandable in some ways why the tech companies, understandable to me, why the tech companies initially fought this act. April, did they eventually get behind it or was this done over their objections?
2: Well, the the Internet Association, which is the lobbying group that represents, you know, the large tech companies, did object to it throughout. You know, there was some concessions, uh, you know, in in more recent months from the from the large tech companies uh, as as the bill started to move forward. But uh, but generally, no, everybody seemed to agree that that this would be bad for the internet industry. I I will say though that this Section Two Thirty has also kind of allowed these tech companies to let. You know, all kinds of stuff happen on their platforms without, you know moderation, right? or or you know, a lot of hate speech has flourished. Um, a lot of uh, hate groups have been able to organize. Uh, a lot of, you know, harassment has occurred. and uh, and these companies have not been responsible for any of that legally, really. And so it's a lot it's really continued. That said, a lot of people who uh, kind of represent sex workers and stuff are worried about what's going to happen now because, you know, although, yes, sex trafficking happens online and through these message boards like Backpage, uh, it's also a place where people who are in the sex industry are able to find work safely and on their own terms and uh, not rely on, uh, you know, kind of informal economies outside of the Internet. So, you know, it's it's a huge debate and, and really um, a lot of people are saying that it actually puts uh, people in, in more danger, and it gives them less control over how they're able to, to do their business. So it's certainly not an easy question, but it looks like Trump um, agrees with the bill and will probably sign it. And this is an issue that we're going to continue to watch closely as well. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with David Carroll. Our guest today is David Carroll. He's an associate professor of media design at Parsons at the New School in New York. He specializes in media, data targeting and political campaigns. And David is currently suing Cambridge Analytica in British court to see if his data landed in the UK and to learn what the company is doing with it. His lawsuit dropped the same day Facebook came forward with the news that it had suspended Cambridge Analytica for misusing its platform. David, welcome to If Then.
0: Great to be on the show. Thank you.
2: Let's start with what Cambridge Analytica said it was capable of doing Um, and also kind of what you've been able to understand through your own research. You know, Cambridge Analytica claimed that they were able to kind of create psychological profiles of people, kind of uh, target people based on, you know, their emotions or, or really specific things about them. And this is how they were able to kind of work with campaigns to have very effective targeting. They called this psychographic targeting. You know, a lot of people have said that this is just, you know, a bunch of, you know, snake oil or, or, or it wasn't uh, just a bunch of buzzwords that they used. I'm curious, what's your take on that? Because you learned a bit more about some of the data that they had collected and, and, and the profiles that they did make on people.
0: Yeah, it's been, just at first, just academic curiosity to understand uh, this from the perspective of just doing the research so we can understand it. Um, But at this stage still, I'm reserving judgment as to whether or not it was effective Uh or could be effective because we uh, don't have enough data to um, determine um, how it actually worked. But we can go by what Chris Wiley, the whistleblower, describes it for now. Um, in terms of you know how they thought they were um, performing the methodology and what it allowed them to be able to do. So just from today's oral evidence session in Parliament Select Committee, where he gave a what I thought to be a stunning uh-huh. testimony of sorts, he described their basic idea was that if they could uh, model the entire electorate, 200 million people, with four to five thousand data points. In order to find the perhaps you know two to five million people who had a personality type that made them particularly susceptible to conspiracy theory because they were outliers in openness and neuroticism, that is, they were very open minded to new thinking, but they were also um, you know very agitated by fear. Uh, they were sort of prime prime targets for Uh, A disinformation campaign. So there is like sort of, you know, we do kind of know this personality type. We either see it in ourselves a little bit or we know friends who are like this. And the key is that it doesn't matter that it doesn't work on individual people. What matters is that it works at a massive scale to find a slice, a segment of the population, and then drill down to the people that then respond to it. And so what we need to think about is this is potentially not normal political advertising we're talking here. This is not banner ads uh-huh. with political candidates saying, I approve this message. This is potentially propaganda that doesn't even resemble propaganda. It's potentially completely falsified media, synthetically generated, and then they use the tools of ad tech targeting, tracking, analytics that are just normal to then track people responding to it. So clicking on, engaging the conversion rate. He talked about that their conversion rate was between 5 and 7% of their campaigns, wow. which is a conversion rate that would make any marketer blush. Like 1% in the industry is considered a phenomenal success of an ad campaign online. So if their conversion rates were that effective, that would enable them to sort of drill down and continuously engage a small segment. And that he described that it probably was about a couple hundred thousand people that they were, in a sense, enveloping with multiple forms of media and creating an alternate narrative sort of surrounding them with the information campaign. So the key to you know, we don't know yet. We're just going by um, sort of anecdotes, but... I just, I think it's dangerous for the people to rule it out as snake oil. Right. They really don't know what they're talking about because... There's no data to prove it.
2: I know, and I mean the the fact is is that the the Leave EU campaign that uh, Cambridge Analytica or, or SCL Group did work on was successful. SCL Group is the parent company of Cambridge Analytica, based in the UK. The Trump campaign was successful. Uh, it, it seems like it's a little too early to parse whether or not their tactics were uh, were actually effective. I, I am curious though. What types of data did they get on people to determine if you're neurotic or not, right? Just because I like something on Facebook doesn't necessarily reveal all my anxieties, right?
0: The original psychometrics model uh, basically uses uh, your Facebook likes Mm -hmm. to find how you are similar to other people and uses sort of laws of correlation to, to figure out that, you know, People who like the same brand of car have a very high correlation to have political beliefs. And so this sort of irrational connection between commercial activity and behaviors to political ideologies, and then that can also be extrapolated to very intimate things that people don't expect to be giving away when they're liking things on Facebook, such as their gender, their sexuality, whether they smoke, whether they drink, whether they use drugs, whether their parents got divorced, we don't realize that we're disclosing these aspects of our life simply by clicking like. And the reason is possible is if you get enough people's likes and you mix them together, you can find these correlations. So 50 million Facebook like collections was just the beginning of the model. And in fact, in the email that came out of Cambridge University from Dr. Kogan, one of the three originators, he says that the model at that time was not more accurate than a coin toss, but that model was continually enriched through the primary season. The Cruz campaign was one of the most aggressive data collectors of all of the primary candidates. And so we have to imagine that they were collecting and absorbing and hoovering up as much data as was, as was possible to create this 5,000 data point per voter dossier, let's, let's call it. And when you have enough data at total scale, you can do some damage. And the question is, what was the accuracy of the model in the peak of the summer of 16? That is actually a mathematical thing that if we could find out, we could actually give an informed, educated understanding of the potential it could have had.
1: That's really interesting. And, of course, it sounds like what you're saying is even if the models were really imprecise, if they were better than 50-50, that's still going to lead to better targeting than you would have had otherwise. And maybe that, you know, of course, as we all know, elections can be won and lost on the margins. Really quickly, what's an example of the type? You mentioned fabricated media. I mean, what types of ads were people seeing? Do we know uh, the people who were targeted based on this kind of data?
0: Um, Some people have figured out how to... um go back and find the so-called dark posts on um, official candidate Facebook pages and super PAC sites.
1: Yeah. So what's a, what's an example of a sort of nefarious looking one that you've seen?
0: So the idea was, and they brag about this, meaning the SEL guys brag about this, that the public goes to, let's say, the Mike Pence Facebook page, and it's a very clean, bright and shiny tone and picture, the language is it's really for public viewing. But then, Facebook users who were targeted, micro-targeted down to these specific qualities, they saw attack ads. They saw negative images. They saw like much more just more sinister tone to the language. And when you compare, you can compare the dark post versus the official post on the Mike Pence official page, and you can you can see that they were making negative ads that only targeted people saw, and to everyone else, it looked shiny and happy.
1: Right, and this is one of the things that Facebook has said it will now change, right? They, they will now uh, n- not run these dark posts anymore. You, you'll have to post everything to your own page in the future.
0: That's not my under- understanding, actually. They are still supporting this feature. They're simply allowing a button that you can, if you choose to, go look at all the ads, that have been purchased for that page. So you have to decide to go look for them, but they can still be used and, and deployed. So the idea is it creates a modicum of accountability, at least, meaning what they're basically saying is journalists are expected to press this button and look at the ads and whistle-blow on the candidates telling lies or being particularly nasty. But otherwise, the technique is not prohibited.
2: Right. I, I heard that uh one of the dark posts in support of Trump was actually the clip of Hillary Clinton uh talking about uh African American youth and, and and gang activity in the early nineties, a very, very troublesome clip, but that was actually sent to uh African Americans specifically to kind of deter voter turnout, right?
0: Yes. This is um a concern that we are need to be understand how it was an equal opportunity campaign. And I don't know if all of us were necessarily immune to it and that regardless of our um, place in the political spectrum, perhaps if we had just exhibited a high degree of openness and a high degree of neuroticism, we were targeted based on our ideology. So one of the concerns that I have, and I put this in my claim, is that I have heard that, for example... Bernie supporters in Br- Brooklyn were targeted. And you'd think, why would they need to do that? But you could see why that would be interesting and useful for them to depress enthusiasm for the Clinton candidacy so that Bernie supporters in Brooklyn did not go to Pennsylvania and canvass around Philadelphia.
2: Right, so I mean, we're talking about really uh, smart, nuanced targeting here um, that that could really, you know, affect what people know and understand bef- before they they go cast their vote. Uh, one one thing I'm curious about, or a subplot that I, I want to tease a bit more that I know you know quite a bit about uh, is the family that that kind of bankrolled Cambridge Analytica, the Mercers. Now, Cambridge Analytica didn't actually form, is my understanding, until 2013. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here, but uh, it was it's a it's an offset of a British. Uh, Uh, voter kind of targeting or election operative organization called the SCL Group. And Cambridge Analytica was a spinoff. So that way they could do their work in the United States. Um, I'm trying to understand kind of the Bannon-Mercer connection here. The Mercer family, just for those who don't know, are the uh, primary financiers behind Breitbart News, also the largest donors uh, through super PACs and and other means to Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, And they also uh, bankrolled Cambridge Analytica, his voter targeting effort. Um, how do they tie in here? Why Did they start Cambridge Analytica just so they can get involved in the 2016 election? It's our understanding
0: that um, when the Mercer family backs a candidate at any level of good government, uh, they have to take on Cambridge Analytica as their official voter analytics firm. It's like a condition of the funding that you get from the family. So there's many politicians, um, not just at Uh, the federal level that that have uh, sort of had to have this deal so um, and then we understand too from Chris Wiley especially from today's hearing that Cambridge Analytica was created as a shell company to obscure the foreign actors the foreigners who were illegally potentially working on the campaign and also to sanitize and cleanse the dodgy history of SEL Group, which has been involved in um, nefarious activities, according to many, around the world. And so the mass ideas, they created this company uh, with the sort of academic sheen to it, but according to Wiley, that was all um, sort of fabricated as well. And this was how the uh, Mercers, especially Rebecca Mercer in particular, was trying to get the Republican Party's data operation um, to leapfrog uh, what the Democrats accomplished in the previous election cycles. And we understand that as soon as 2014, uh, the first software was deployed, something called Repon, which apparently was actually created by a Canadian company, the kind of Canadian SEL affiliate. So right. this idea that the Republican data machine has been imported from Great Britain and Canada. And the question is, how many Americans have actually been working on the Republican voter operation for the past four years is a kind of an interesting question.
2: And the FEC might be interested in that because there are laws about uh, non-U.S. persons engaging in U.S. political campaigns. One other uh, grain that I, I want to add to this is that uh, the team that worked at Cambridge or that was hired by Cambridge Analytica to create the uh the app that was used to harvest Facebook user profiles one of the members of that team uh actually still actually now is an employee at Facebook his name is Joseph Chancellor he's still an employee at Facebook as far as we know he worked with Alexander Kogan uh to to create the app to harvest that data so uh it's just how intertwined this all is is is, is quite fascinating um Will had a question about uh, uh, kind of the Obama campaign tactics and 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 how that compares to what's happening now.
1: Yes, yeah, so so Co-host Megan McCain on on ABC's The View said, "Look, Barack Obama did all the same stuff, and he was praised for it. You know, he did this kind of micro targeting of people on Facebook based on their on their likes and demographics and all that sort of thing. What is the crucial difference, if there is one, in your mind, between what uh, the Trump campaign was apparently doing via Cambridge Analytica and what the Obama campaign had done before it? And was it just that the that the data by Cambridge Analytica was fraudulently?" was allegedly fraudulently obtained or was there some difference of, of quality in what they were actually doing with the targeting?
0: Um, so a couple of things. And it's a really important question. So the first thing is that the Facebook feature called Custom Audiences, which allows people, advertisers of any kind, to upload data into Facebook to target people by name, one-on-one, was not available until 2013. So it could not have possibly been used during both Obama campaigns. So, And this seems to be an instrumental feature that was exploited significantly, and they were uploading voter rolls and probably uploading Cambridge Analytica pre-targeted, voter rolls into Facebook to target voters one-on-one. So there's some key Facebook features that simply weren't available, and so it's, it's kind of comparing apples to oranges from that respect. The other important thing to just note when people say that is Cambridge Analytica's servers were seized by the British authorities last week under a warrant in criminal court. So it's just, you can't really compare it. If it were... if. It, <laughs> I mean, if it was permitted then, it is not permitted now. Um, so the sort of permissiveness and the promiscuity of data and privacy enforcement and so on has shifted substantially. Um, and the fact that it's just not tolerated, especially if the data is, is um, obtained illegitimately, potentially unlawfully, uh, and especially that it is internationalized. Uh, the Obama campaign was a domestic civilian operation. We cannot say the same for the Cruz campaign and the Trump campaign in this past election. So these are significant, meaningful differences that people need to just keep in mind. This is not a straight answer of they did it, Uh, we can do it too. This is really a whole different and scary difference.
2: Right. You know, it seems like this story is just going to keep unraveling and hopefully people will continue to pay attention to it because it is about the integrity of our political processes. Uh, David, we're going to wrap the interview there. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Oh, it's so good to be on. Thank you so much.
1: We're going to take a short break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best stories we saw online this week. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week?
2: So I'm the one with a Twitter thread this week. Um, It is by a senior editor at Curbed named Sally Kuchar, and she uh, is based in the Bay Area. She's based in Berkeley, works in San Francisco, has been looking at real estate in the area for a long time. And she tweeted about the housing market in the Bay Area yesterday, and it went viral, viral. 5,000 people retweeted it now already. And it's really just a bunch of statistics about how bleak the market really is here. She said that just talking about San Francisco, in the last 30 days, 413 homes have been sold. The median price of those homes, $1.45 million. You know, it, it just, it gets worse. You know, once you go down to Menlo Park, 33 homes have been sold. This is where Facebook is based. The average price there is $2.6 million. You know, in Oakland, where I live, 354 homes are for sale. And... Um, In the last 30 days, about 260 homes have sold, and uh, the average – the median price for those are $735,000. I mean, it just – I wanted to talk about this because obviously the Bay Area is kind of the global center of the tech industry in many ways. But that radiates out into so many – other aspects of life here and housing has really been under stress um, as a result of the just explosive growth of the tech industry. I've said this before, but you know, about five of the the most powerful companies in the world are between Cupertino and Seattle, right? I mean, it's just a tremendous amount of wealth, and that has made it really hard to live here. So uh, amazing thread! I really recommend it. We'll be sharing it on our show page.
1: Yeah, I saw that too. I was captivated by some of those numbers, also. As a former Bay Area resident who lived there a decade ago when it was really expensive but not so insanely expensive. It was interesting. I was in town last week and, and saw some of what has changed, and it's not just the fancy high-rise condos, but it's also the seemingly ever-growing tent uh, villages under the freeway overpasses. It's, it's just like it's just quite a, a, a um, vision of inequality there.
2: Yeah, which are being cleared, and, and you know we just don't have enough housing, it seems, and uh, much less affordable housing at that. Uh, Will, what tab have you left open this week that you kept thinking about?
1: Yeah, I hate to go back to yet another thing that's related to Cambridge Analytica. I feel like it was seemingly inescapable last week, but this is a story from The Atlantic by Ian Bogost, and the headline is, My Cow Game Extracted Your Facebook Data. And in it, Ian Bogost tells about this game he developed on a lark in 2010 on Facebook, it was called Cow Clicker. It was basically a satire of other dumb social games like Farmville or whatever else. You could you would have a cow and your only goal was to click on it as much as possible. Uh, you could click like once every six hours. And he related all the types of data that he was privy to even in his dumb cow game he didn't want data on anybody he wasn't even trying to get data facebook handed it to him regardless the piece goes through the mechanics of why people handed over their data so willingly i think that's a really interesting piece that's been somewhat overlooked in the scandal is the fact that that you know most of us just gave gave out these permissions to our data left and right. We weren't thinking about who we were giving them to. Facebook encouraged us to do it and we did it like a bunch of lemmings. And so I would argue we bear <laughs> the individual Facebook users bear at least some responsibility here too. But certainly it was Facebook who set up the whole system to encourage us to do that and to make it seem like everything was fine. We were everything was trustworthy and just go ahead and give your permission because that's mm. how you play the game and that's how you have fun.
2: You know, I mean this is maybe where we disagree because I actually never want to put the onus on users. I think that these companies you know, put a tremendous a lot of effort into shepherding our behavior and into making us feel like it's OK and safe to be where we are. And we often don't even have the choice but to trust these companies. Right. Because if you're not on Facebook, then you don't have a social life. Right. I I kind of dropped off Facebook a little bit. And honestly, I don't really hang out with people anymore. And I don't know when anything's happening. <laughs> and that's a decision I made. It was a retreat. But uh, but not everybody can make that decision or, or even wants to.
1: That's a fair point. And I should note that Ian Bogos, the author of the story, did not uh, blame individual users. He, in fact, made it very clear how this was by design to get people to give up this information without really knowing what they were doing. So that was me editorializing there. But I think a little frustration comes from just seeing, you know, you and I have been writing about privacy for years. I've been writing privacy stories for maybe six or more years, and they just don't do that well. People don't want to read about it because it is confusing and it is, you know, annoying to have to to, to learn about how to protect yourself online when you just want to use the services. So I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted. I can see I can see the case that users aren't to blame, but I do think we could all take a few more steps to be to be careful about who we're giving our information to.
2: Well, I guess it's just on us to make sure that we continue to write about this. And when we do continue to write about it, to write about it in a compelling, human-centered way where we really make sure that what's at stake is uh, spelled out very clearly.
1: Yeah. And maybe that brings us full circle here, because I think that's one way of thinking of what the Cambridge Analytica scandal did. It finally presented these privacy issues in a way that resonated with people and that suddenly made people care about uh, who was harvesting their data and how and why.
2: And that wraps our show for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at, at slate.com.
1: You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus, and April is at AprilAzen. Thanks again to our guest, David Carroll. You can follow him on Twitter at ProfCarroll.
2: And if you like the show, help us spread the word. We'd really appreciate it if you left us a comment or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks a lot for doing that in advance.
1: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara.
2: Thanks to Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. We will see y'all next week.
1: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology. Oops.
2: <laughs> this is a <like> cartoon <laughs> phone. <laughs>